Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Do you feel like that whole path of getting arrested 20 times is also sort of a form of escapism? It's not normal to have your younger child in the home trying to stop the older child from suicide attempts. Yes, you can say, oh, I don't want to do this. Or, you know, you can give demands like that, but you're then told that you're being bad. You're not going to be booked anymore because you're a diva. Welcome back to Redefine You, a conversation for well-being, where we have open and honest conversations. I'm your host, Haley Hasselhoff, and Redefine You is meant to inspire you to look within and guide you to lead a life being grounded in you. Today's guest, Lana Rhodes, is the living embodiment of the Redefine You spirit and a powerful example of the life-changing benefits of self-love and self-compassion. From a juvenile correctional facility at 16 to adult film work and now social media stardom, motherhood and podcast host of Empowered, Lana is breaking barriers to showcase how one can turn their lived experiences into helping others feel protected. Thank you so much, Lana, for joining me. I can't wait to have this conversation with you. Oh, thank you so much for that amazing intro. (laughs) Oh, you're welcome. So we start every episode where I like to check in with my guests emotionally where they're at. So where are you at right here, right now? Right now, in this particular moment, um, honestly, with pregnancy, because I'm about six months pregnant now, it's different every single day because you have so many hormones rushing through your body. So I would say every day I'm waking up in a different mindset. Some days I'm like, wow, this is the best thing that's ever happened to me. Other days I'm like, oh my God, get this baby out of me. I hate <laughs> um, so it's up and down and, you know, like everything, it's just, you know, constant trying to find that peace and that happiness and, you know, your direction in life. And so um, I'm working on it every day. Well, we're so excited to have you on the podcast because you truly are an example of somebody who is currently redefining themselves and using her life lessons to help other women worldwide. But I want to kind of start from the beginning. You know, let's tap into you were born as a Mora Maples in Chicago, Illinois, and you grew up as a country girl. What was your childhood like? <laughs> so my parents are actually divorced. So I grew up half in the country with my mom and then half my dad lives in the city. So I would go back and forth um, growing up. So I wasn't 100% a country girl, but I still do like to incorporate that into my daily life, even though I live in- I mean, um, I saw your phone case two seconds ago and I love how it's like cow. And I'm like, I'm like country girl all the way. I mean, hey, even if you were there half the time, you're still, you're still embodying it. Yeah. And I live in like um, a suburb, like right outside of like Hollywood, but I still have ducks on my property and stuff. Like I just love animals too. I think it was from growing up that way. So did you grow up on a farm then with your mom and then your dad's side, obviously it was more in the city? Well, we did have a big backyard at my mom's, but we always had lots of pets. My mom had 14 cats growing up, oh my God. Um, lots of dogs. And then on visitation with my father, we used to go to my cousin's farm. And so I had farm animals there and it was the best part of my childhood was being on that farm. And so that's why I want to incorporate that into my child's childhood when he's here and why I got the ducks and I want to get rabbits and goats, not where I live now. I'm trying to look for like a bigger property to move to. Yeah. I mean, I think that it's wonderful to have it. We grew up with a ton of animals and like, I mean, pretty much had every kind when we were younger. Um, and it was just a lovely experience. Maybe it's so special and wholesome having so special. So special. I mean, you had maybe that many cats, but we had a lot of dogs growing up. So I feel like I've lived a different life, but it's very, very similar. Um, You talk obviously about, you know, you having to go and do visitation with your father. When did your parents get divorced? 
So it's actually interesting. My parents got divorced when my older sister was maybe almost four. And I actually was not born yet. My mom was pregnant with me. Oh, wow. So she went through the pregnancy, most of it almost completely alone, had me. And it's sort of powerful to choose, I think, to get divorced while you're pregnant and vulnerable in that situation. So um, now me going through this, it's great to have talk to because she went through sort of the same experience. I mean, yeah, I'm sure that you're learning a lot of beautiful lessons from your mother and kind of what her lived experience was back then as well. You know, one of the things that you have spoken to me about and you say that your sister was four while you were pregnant, while your mom was pregnant with you, is that your sister does suffer from a mental health condition of schizophrenia. Mm -hmm. And I want to know from you, you know, what was that sort of experience like living with a loved one with a mental health condition? And when did she necessarily get diagnosed? Yeah, that's a good question. So my sister, she started displaying symptoms of her mental illness probably around the time that she was 11, 12, and it manifested in different ways. At first, she had a disorder called trichotillomania, which is where you pull out your hair. So she was pulling out essentially all her eyebrows, eyelashes, some hair on her head, And that was very scary and confusing to me because I was so much younger than her. And I remember thinking that she was like a scary monster when she didn't have the hair on her face because she looked different. Yeah. So that was one of the first signs that she had a mental disorder. And then the next thing developed, I think, when she was around 13, she, Mm -hmm. um, had a really bad eating disorder. She had bulimia and then anorexia. And then shortly after that came the suicide attempts, which were constant almost every week. And I really, as a young child, I just wanted to help her. And Mm. I spent a lot of my childhood watching her and sort of being almost like a second caregiver to her because my mom was a single mom. She had to work full time. So I was there watching her through a lot of it. But the diagnosis was, it wasn't instant that they knew that she was schizophrenic. At first, it was just trichotillomania. Then it was an eating disorder. And then it was bipolar. And then as she got older, they realized that it was schizophrenia. Wow. And and that must have been a lot on you as well for not knowing what that is and how to be able to be there at such a young age. I mean, I know what it feels like to have to kind of be the parent to another person. And sometimes that can actually be quite daunting on yourself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know it was a lot to take on. And I've talked to my mom about it since then. I'm like, you know, I would have wished because now my sister actually has a child. So I'm like, you know, be careful about what you're putting on the younger children around, because it was a lot, I think, for me to take on. And at the time, I didn't realize all that I was taking on. But it's not normal to have your younger child in the home trying to stop the older child from suicide attempts every day. Um, It really was like constantly having to watch her. If you left her alone for 30 minutes, you would find her hanged or overdosed Mm -hmm. on pills. It was just constant chaos. And so anyone else who or parents watching this, if one child is sick and the other isn't, it's you really need to make sure that there's other people there instead of putting that on your child, because it was very stressful, even though I didn't know it at the time. Can I ask you one thing? Cause I know that I would like to be asked it if I was in your position in the sense of, you know, what, what did little Lana need in that moment? You know, if you could speak to little Lana who was going through those day-to-day lived experiences, who at that point was just trying to survive and help another person, you know, what would you say to her? I mean, I, I don't know if there is anything that could have helped because children, when you're in a home environment or a home situation, you really have no control over anything or your own circumstances until you're 18, which is really unfortunate. Well, I mean, it's more of asking a question of, you know, the love that maybe you needed back then to know that you were looked after as well. Cause sometimes when you look after somebody else, you can feel that lack of support in your own journey. Right. Yeah. And I'm sure that you were going through your own relationship with your mental well-being while also taking care of somebody else who was going through theirs. 
And so um, I guess it's the question of, you know, how was your mental well-being back then while you were taking care of somebody else? Because that's a really hard job to do at such a young age. Yeah. I don't, I don't know like what I would tell her when you're young. I don't think that you really process things like that. Like, oh, I'm, I'm sad right now. Or, oh, I should talk to a therapist or, oh, I should get help for this. You just don't really think about things like that. So I always just thought, oh, I'm fine. Like once the situation's over, I'm going to go to school or I'm going to go to cheerleading practice and everything's going to be fine. Yeah. Do you think that that's sort of what led you into kind of escaping into films and TV and kind of looking at this glamorized lifestyle? I know you talk about how the girl next door was sort of your opening eyes to just the sex industry in general and kind of was that first way for you to sort of go, oh, that can maybe be something that I want to get into one day and the glamorization of it. Do you think that maybe there was a sense of escapism through watching TV and film like that, that kind of guided did you into that next journey in your life? Yes, 100%. So that was one thing that I did do to cope with the situations. I remember being on Christmas break and my sister was having an episode and I had a laptop at the time and somehow I found the girls next door. It was no longer airing on TV and I just started watching every single episode and I just thought to myself, wow, these girls, you know, at the time I'm like a child, I'm like 12. I'm like, they have a trampoline. They have a big yard and a zoo at their house. And they're so pretty. Their life looks amazing. And so I sort of, I guess, you know, going back to your prior question, that's sort of how my young mind got through the circumstances and Mm. all the trauma that I was going through by knowing that when I turned 18, there was going to be an out where I could go be like these girls that I was seeing on TV. So it very much was glamorized to me because they looked like they had this perfect life, Mm. which is really deceiving to young girls because come out that a lot of that just wasn't the case. Yeah. I've listened to other podcasts with Holly Madison and which which was one of the girls from the girls next door that I was watching. And she's also very unhappy with a lot of her experiences. So it can be very deceiving. And I think it's important for young girls to know that what they're seeing online and what they're seeing on TV isn't necessarily reality. And for many others like myself, I ended up putting myself in positions and doing stuff that I had no business doing because I thought that it was going to be like what I was seeing on TV. I think TV film representation is a huge thing because a lot of the times they show one story of that industry or one planted thing, especially in reality, everything's edited. And a lot of people don't actually have that mindset when they're watching it for the first time. So it is true to have this sense of you only get to see the good side or you only get to see the one side to that person's story that may relate to somebody else. And it's important that we paint all pictures of the story so that people actually understand the good and the bad and the different, and then can make their own personal decision off that something that they want to try in their life or feel like they're getting getting aspirations or inspirations from that, you know, thing on TV and film or in media. You know, you spoke about at the age of 16, you were arrested for taking drugs and being involved in gang robbery 20 times before going to prison. Do you feel like that whole path of getting arrested 20 times was also sort of a form of escapism from what you were dealing with in your childhood? To a certain degree, it was looking for peers who accepted me and just, you know, people. Sorry, my dog is crawling. No, my Um, God, babe. So to a certain degree, just looking for peers who accepted me um, and it just, Nini, stop. (laughs) It just so happened that the people who did were just not good people. And I ended up getting sucked into doing things that I never thought that I would do. 
which I guess kind of seems to be a common theme in my life. <laughs> yeah, but I think that is if you break it down to like just teenager to teenager, a lot of teenagers get into that place. You know, a lot of teenagers can get into a place where they start to hang out with a group of people where they feel like they're finally accepted in some astro- you know, aspect, but then they're steered into a direction that they probably wouldn't have gone down if they were by themselves, right? If they weren't peer pressured or they weren't kind of guided down that that path. What initially then, I know that you got sentenced to five years, but then you only did one year. What initially got you into doing a juvie sentence, if you don't mind me asking? So it's it's actually hard to get sent to a juvenile prison. I I guess I just... So I had multiple charges, I remember, and I just kept being involved in stuff. When you're a juvenile, you can get arrested, but you don't necessarily get sent to a detention center like an adult. So say you went and you burglarized a car as a juvenile, they wouldn't send you to a jail afterwards. They would just book you and then send you home with your parents, which is interesting. So for a long time, I wasn't experiencing the consequences of my actions. So I was like, oh, this is fine. You know, and I just kept going out with these friends and doing what they told me to do. And at the time I wasn't, I wasn't benefiting financially off any of the situations. I was just kind of there along for the ride, I suppose, Mm -hmm. looking for the acceptance, looking for love from this guy that I liked. And so after maybe 10 to 15 instances of me getting charges with these people, they're like, okay, we can't have her out here anymore. Like she just won't stop. And so I ended up I and so every out. time they just sent you home in those incidents, though. Yeah. Yeah. They just send you home. That's so crazy. Which is it's right. It's like, yeah. I mean, you go to court after, but right. even that can take a long time. And then for juveniles, most of the time they just get probation. OK, so I was doing all that and I. I was going to court. I think I was supposed to only get probation and I was on house arrest at the time because they were like, we just can't have this girl on the street anymore. She doesn't listen. She's not learning. And I believe that I think it was New Year's and I had the guy over to my house and we drank, which obviously you're not allowed to drink as a minor. And my mom was always like, very, she would call the police on me. Like my mom's very like um, a stringent, like rule following woman. Like she will turn you in herself if you're doing anything wrong. And she called the police. I wasn't supposed to have anyone in the house and I wasn't supposed to be drinking. I think I was 16 mm-hmm. at the time. And so they were like, okay, yeah. this is the last straw, straw. We can't even trust you on house arrest. And so I got sent to a holding facility and I was like, oh, they'll let me out. And then my court date came around and they ended up sending me to prison for what's called a full commitment. So I think I was 16 or 17 at the time. And that means that I would stay in the facility until I was 21. And I, wow. ended up, yeah, which was very, very scary because I went from just I getting bet. This- a slap on the wrist, essentially, and thinking, oh, it's no big deal to, okay, you're going to spend, what, like five, six years in a facility now? Great. I mean, wow. I mean, that that's hard for anybody, no matter what age, to get that sort of sentence, right? But to be 16 and get that sentence and know that your adolescence and your, you know, informative years are then going to be taken away from you when you were kind of showcased, you know, 15, 20 times, 20 times, a lot of times to be slapped on the wrist. And then to just say, you know, we're just going to keep throwing you back home, you know? So I'm sure that in your mind, you just didn't think that it was, it was going to ever get to that place. Now, the, the thing is though, what you do talk about is that prison actually had a very positive reflect on who you are today and kind of guided you into the lessons you needed to learn at that formative time in your life. Can you speak to us a little bit about that? Yeah. So everyone's like, oh, you're crazy when you say this, but I think that going to prison was one of the best things that ever happened to me because Mm. I would not have like become, I would not have turned my life around. I would probably be like everyone else that I was hanging out with at the time who are addicted to drugs, still in jail, still committing crimes. So I went to prison for a year, but I really have to give a shout out to the staff that is in the facility, helping these girls and these children 
whether it's the counselors or the therapists that they provide for you, or even the woman who works in the kitchen, which I also worked in, who she was just great as well. They really gave me, I felt more loved by them than I had had ever felt in my entire life. Mm -hmm. I felt more guidance from a parental figure than I had ever felt in my entire life. And it was very healing for me to have that because it was something that I lacked. It also surprisingly was less chaotic than my childhood growing up. So it was like, I finally got to be a kid and relax, even though it seems crazy because it's prison or it's juvie, but we got to play tag in the hallways and do all the things that kids usually do, which I did not get to do growing up. So it was very healing. And when I was released from the facility, I had no desire to drink alcohol. I had no desire to really do any of the behaviors that I was doing before because I got that love and I got that guidance that I needed. And I went and I got a job and I just started doing all the right things. And it wasn't because anyone was telling me to or forcing me to do it. It was because I really was just healed from all the the negativity and and hurt that I acquired from my childhood. So when you got out of juvie, how was your relationship with your mom during that period? What does your mom do for a living? Um, My mom's actually a very intelligent woman and she works in like a high IT position. So she was just not there growing up because she was so busy with work. She takes her career Mm -hmm. very seriously. And then it was just the situation with my sister Um, So something that was important for me to do when I got out of prison, because my sister was still living at home at the time, there was still the same stressors, was to remove myself from that situation. Mm -hmm. And so I would say that I moved out of my mom's house probably about a month after getting out of prison because it was just something that I needed to do to not drag myself back to that place. And then where did you go from there? Is that when you started working at like the restaurant that's sort of like Hooters and then it sort of traveled into stripping? Like, where's the, am I, am I on the right path here? Yes. So my first job was at the Tilted Kilt, which is a Scottish Scottish variation of Hooters. So that was sort of my first foray into sex work because you wear like a little bra shirt and like a tiny skirt. I didn't really realize at the time. Um, but I did start getting a lot of attention. I Mm. know that I had really, really low self-esteem when I was younger, probably from my childhood. And it felt great to have this attention. All these guys would come in and be like, Hey, here's $20. You're the prettiest girl here. And it made me feel really good. So it was reassuring. That was my first job. It helped me be able to rent a, a room from Mm -hmm. like this family that had a house nearby. So I didn't have to live at home anymore. It was helpful in that way. And then it also was a smooth transition into me going to the strip club on my 18th birthday and acquiring a job. Oh, wow. And is that when you, you met your then husband before you went into the strip club or after? So I met him at the Tilted Kilt. Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. I started working at the kilt, I think, a few weeks before I turned 18. And mm-hmm. I had to get a signature from my dad because you have to have parental permission because of the outfits and all of that. So I think I met my then husband. Just so you know, pregnancy gives you the worst memory ever. So I'm You're like, fine. Oh, You're I'm fine. Like, We're not looking for dates here, girl. If you asked me what date my life was in, I wouldn't know either. So you're totally okay. It's bad. It kind of gives you a bird brain. <laughs> Um, So I met my then husband, I think when I was 17, about to be 18, he was quite a bit older than me, I think by like nine or 10 years. And we met and then I ended up going to the strip club and he actually took me there for the first time to get my job. I think he thought that I was going to be a waitress there though. I don't think that he knew that I was going to plan on being a dancer. And when you became a dancer, what was that sort of experience like for you? Did you enjoy it at all? Or was it it something that you felt like, this isn't really what I want to do. I want to figure out maybe something similar in this arena, but this isn't kind of my stiz. At first, I honestly, it was the low self-esteem again. And I was like, oh my gosh, this guy just gave me $300 to 
dance on him in this room. I was like, I'm not pretty enough for this. Why would a guy give me, to me, $300 at the time was a big deal. My mom was very frugal growing up being a single mom. So I thought that it was just so much money. And I couldn't believe that guys thought that I was good enough or pretty enough to give me $300, $200 or a hundred dollars. So I felt, um, it was a big confidence boost to me, even though now in the grand scheme of things, I'm like, it's nothing and guys will pay for anything. (laughs) But at the time, Hey, it's like the perfect example of what we'll get into a bit later about, you know, what you're doing for women and girls now, because I think that you're identifying the emotion in which you were lacking within your own self-worth that then brought you to places that necessarily you don't know if you would have been originally. Right. Mm -hmm. So then it's about in giving people the advice of before you get into anything that comes into the sex working industry, because I know that you are pro sex work. It's the sense of make sure that you have self-worth and make sure that you have self-assurance, because if you've got those two, then you know that you're doing it for the purpose because you enjoy it rather than the purpose that you're doing it for the validation in which was what I got tangled into. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I think a lot of it has to do with age And that's one thing that I believe is that, you know, the age limit for these type of things should be raised because I just did not have the mental maturity or capacity to really know or process what I was doing whatsoever. To me, it was still, this is what I saw on TV. This is like, it's when you're younger, a lot of these things, even like being involved in the criminal aspect that I was, it almost feels like a a game when you're mm. a kid, you, your brain is not developed enough to really fully process or understand what you're doing. Yeah. You also don't have the empathy that you have as an adult or a lot of the emotional range or maturity that you need to make decisions. For example, when I was part of these burglaries or robberies with these people, I never thought like, this is someone's house that I'm helping these people break into. It just Mm -hmm. seemed like it was a game. I didn't take it seriously. But now as an adult, I would look at the pictures on the wall and I'd be like, these people worked very hard for this stuff. You can't take that. You know, it's just, it's really, really crazy how much time you need for your brain to fully mature. And I think it's a big thing, especially in sex work, because it's, a huge life altering decision that will follow you for the rest of your life. I think you need that maturity to fully process and make the decision that you're well, we'll start by like tilted kilt, right? Like tilted kilt <laughs> shouldn't be having 16 year olds, you know, or 17, 18 year olds get permission from their parents to wear skimpy outfits and, you know, get money from men because they think they're pretty. You know, I think that's where the first thing sort of starts, right? Because then it's the evolution and it's sort of the domino effect of, oh, I'm getting validation here. So where else can I get validation in this arena? Because it feels so good. And I don't know anything different because that's what it is. When we're younger, we're starry eyed, right? We're like new to everything. And that's why people always say, go speak to kids if you're having a bad day, because they think everything's new, everything's glossy. There's no fear to do anything because they don't know what's right or wrong. And so when you kind of have that direction where somebody is telling you actually the wrong is right or the wrong is okay, sometimes Mm -hmm. it can be a bit confusing and conflicting. Yeah. So let's go into 19 years old. You were flown to Arizona to shoot your first porn. Mm -hmm. How did you get an invitation? And were you excited about this at that point? Because it was something that, you know, back in the day, you looked at the girls next door and it was sort of a piece that was in the back of your mind that maybe someday I could go into this industry. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So since watching the girls next door, that was my first initial I guess, view into sex work because essentially they were sex workers. You know, they were having sex with Hugh to live in the house and be his girlfriend, um, as well as taking nudes for the magazine. And then as I got older, you know, you discover porn as most adolescent children do. And so then I started researching porn stars, Jenna Jameson, Savannah, Sasha Gray, And watching all their interviews and thinking, once again, their life looks great. They're so cool. I would love to be beautiful like them when I grow up. So it was always something that was in the back of my mind. 
And I just sort of put it off and I was like, okay, I'm going to work. I'm going to try working at this restaurant first and then I'm going to try stripping first. And then when I sort of got tired of those, then I would up the ante, I suppose. And so I applied at a porn agency, which ended up not being the first one that I signed with, but they introduced me to a company in Arizona that I shot my first solo scene for at 19, which Mm -hmm. I think is really interesting. And it's actually something that I look back at now because when I see that those videos, one, I look so young. I look like a baby, like I shouldn't even be naked on camera. And then two, I had only slept with one person at this point, which was my ex-husband. So I was completely not sexually experienced whatsoever. I remember, I think some of it's on video too. If people went and watched the videos, I did not know how to finger myself. I didn't even know if my finger would fit in my vagina. Like this is how unexperienced I was. So I'm filming these videos and he's explaining me what to say to the camera. He's telling me how to finger myself. If if people think that's who should be recorded naked and, and doing these things, like it's, it's, I think that it's wrong. When I watch it, it's very, very disappointed. Disappointing that I was exploited like that, even though it's something that I signed up to do, because it's very clear to me that I should not have been doing that. And that was your first experience? That was my that first you had? experience. Yes. And, and do you hear him on camera? I believe you can. Um, Cause it's very, it's a very amateur style video. And I believe he did talk to me on camera and explain to me what to do. Like, this is how you use this toy. And at the time, I don't think I could even fit toys inside of me. And he had to tell me how to finger myself. He had to tell me what to say along with my first boy girl scene. I remember going and it wasn't a bad experience at all, but I had to be completely directed and told what to say, how to give a blow job how to do anything because I did not know. Like, that's a baby. (laughs) I I mean, that's what I mean. I mean, my heart, my heart drops and my heart sinks because the thought of that, that was even recorded. And there was a guy that was guiding you into how to do something like that. When I think that you were so new to the whole experience and so green to the whole experience of even just exploring your own sexuality, which is a perfectly okay thing. You know, I'm not here to say like exploring your own sexuality ain't a bad thing. But what I'm saying is like, you weren't given that opportunity to even explore your own sexuality. You were the first time you had to do that. It was more of a, I don't want to say the word force, but it was more of a directed thing that happened with you. And so for you to look back and be like, oh, I was so young. I was so green to all of this. And how could they not see that, that I might've been too young to put myself in that position? It's, it's a lot. And, you know, I, I always want to say thank you for just sharing these experiences because I'm sure tapping back into them brings up a lot and that's only normal. Um, you know, I'm obviously quite naive to the whole porn industry or sex working industry. And so I kind of wanted to kind of dive in with you a little bit as well, even after hearing that those first couple experiences that you had, it kind of, you know, how are you presented with each adult film and like how much control do you have to say like what you can or what you won't do before you sign on to the job? Who sort of gives you that, you know, schedule per se? So most girls getting into the industry at the time when I was in the industry, they had agents. It was just the thing that everyone did. And so the first agent that I had, he was very like, okay, you're going to do this. You're going to do this. You have shoots for these people. The industry is very, in a way, you know, the girls are disposable, which you're told that when you come into the industry, like you're disposable, our relationship. Yeah. They tell you that. And they say our relationship with the producers is more important. So the agent's goal is to get you to do as much as you can for as cheap as you can. I mean, I'm I'm also, very upset right now. And also to you know, very, keep going. very pliable. So yes, you can say, oh, I don't want to do this. Or, you know, you can give demands like that. 
but you're then told that you're being bad. You're um, not going to be booked anymore because you're a diva. Say like you say, no, I don't want come on my face. Could you please do it somewhere else? Then you would get reprimanded and told that you probably wouldn't be booked again because that's what they want. Were you living in a house with other girls at the time or were you living on your own with your husband? Um, No. So me and my husband had broken up at this point, gone on a separation. And my first agent flew me to him and had me stay in his apartment in the room across from his. And I shared a bed with another girl. And then after that, I think I stayed there for a few months. And then he actually wouldn't let me move far away from him. He said, you have to stay in Woodland Hills, which is the area where most of the porn is shot and had me get an apartment in the same building as him so he could watch what I was doing. And he also did not want me to have boyfriends date or do anything that wasn't work related. So it was very, it was very much controlled. Yeah. And I think at that age as well, when you're wanting to sort of climb the ranks, because you still have this idea of, you know, if I get to a specific place, I'm going to get into, you know, the girls next door, I'm going to get into that sort of arena of things. You probably fearful, I'm assuming, you know, to speak up for yourself in an aspect. I mean, I know, like I said, I'm very naive to all this. So excuse me if I say the wrong thing, but I, I just want to say, you know, I think many people, when they think of sex workers, they sometimes think that they can be groomed or they can have a pimp. And I want to know, do you have you experienced that? Do you know friends that have experienced that? In the porn industry. So I will say it's a known thing that some agents are more pimp-like than others. So I had two agents during my time in porn. The first one was what I just described. And he is known as one of the best agents in that industry, but it did not work for me. It took me a long time to stand up for myself and say like, hey, I don't, I can't work with you. You're yelling and screaming at me. I want my freedom to live my life and date and be, you know, a normal human who doesn't just wake up every single day and go and shoot porn. So I actually quit. I left that agent and then I came back, I think four months later and I signed with a new agent, which was a much better fit for me and a more positive experience to work with. Um, so I think it really depends on, on who you get aligned with, but there are lots of bad agents out there, which I think is Pluto (laughs) is one of the major issues with the industry as well is just these 40 year old men who have been in the industry for 20, 30 years, maybe longer. And they, are very, very good at getting the girls to do exactly what they want through, I think, grooming. Because the second I got off the plane, it was, this is what the good sluts do. This is how you're going to be successful. The good girls do Mm. this. They don't complain. They do anal for $400. And that's the type of stuff that I was being told almost immediately. And so you you feel like you have to do it because they're speaking so positively of these other girls that are doing things that aren't necessarily good for them. Wow. Wow. And I mean, it's, it's definitely a sense of control and nobody should feel control over their own body or who they want or what they want to do, especially in an industry that, you know, you're putting yourself into. So it's a horrible thing to listen to, to know that you felt that way at specific times within it. I mean, you did go off to do 50 adult films and you were named the most popular entertainer in 2017. So where was the shift? What made you say to yourself in those last two months, you know, it's time for me to leave this behind and to find a new way out of this so I can build a life some someplace else? Yeah. So I, although I'm sure there were good times, there were a lot of scenes that were just, you know, they were fine. Nothing remarkable, nothing remarkable about them. However, when you have three to five bad scenes that, um, are somewhat traumatic, it sort of outweighs it and dampens your experience. So after having a good handful of scenes, things that I didn't really want to do. And once again, I always have to say, I never said no. I never verbally said no. 
I always said, even if I didn't want to do something, I always said, thank you for the work. I'm so happy to do it. So no one is to blame for me doing the things that I did or not, you know, being an advocate for myself. Those oh, sister, sister. No, it's hard to say no if you're in that specific situation, though, you yeah, know, and I think that's kind of, of go on. Sorry. A lot of girls, they don't word things properly when they're trying to tell their story. And they will say, oh, I was raped or this happened and that happened. And then footage comes out later of them saying, you know, oh, I was so happy to shoot the scene, which I know that they were thinking in their head that they were being raped the whole time, but they didn't verbally say it. So, you know, you really have to be careful with what you say because people will go back and twist things up because they don't understand that even though you weren't verbally showing or saying things that's how you felt inside and i see that happen with so many girls who try to tell their story so i try to be very very careful with how i say it so you had a lot of different experiences many of which i think were quite traumatic and kind of guided you out of the industry and so I'm wondering to yourself, you know, what was that experience like when you were leaving the industry and did you experience anything that might have been new for you and your mental well-being and your journey? Yeah, so towards the end of it because of some of the bad experiences that I encountered, I was started developing panic attacks towards the end. Just it was still in me where I didn't know how to say no. So I remember shooting yeah. stuff that I didn't want to shoot. And telling everyone, yeah, I'm so excited to shoot this scene for my showcase this week, even though I was really terrified. Mm. Some of the stuff that I started doing towards the end of my career was almost even dangerous physically. Mm. So um, I started developing panic attacks because I had a lot of scenes lined up that I didn't really want to do. And I had anxiety about saying no to do them. And I went through with some of them. And then I remember... Just one day I went to set and I texted my agent and I finally said, I can't do this. Mm-hmm. And he was like, what? Like you have four months of scenes booked up to shoot. We can't cancel all of them. And I'm like, I really can't do this anymore. And I just left set. And that was the last time that I shot a scene. And it was, it was like four months. I didn't want to be shooting anymore, but for some reason, And I feel a lot of young girls can relate. We just don't know how to say no. And we don't know how to do things that we know will upset other people. Mm. And I finally was just, I chose myself that day. And I was scared because I didn't have any other form of income lined up. I didn't know how I was going to pay my $5,000 rent. I didn't know how I was going to sustain my lifestyle. But around that time, and I sort of feel like things always sort of fall into your lap in the perfect timing, I met someone in the YouTube space, not any of the YouTubers that I've been affiliated recently, um, and I won't say his name, but I met him around that time, and I didn't even have an Instagram And he was sort of telling me all about social media. And he's like, I get paid $15,000 to post a picture with a Jeep. And I was like, I'm getting $1,500 or $1,200 to do this sex scene that I don't want to do. Wow. And so I was like, how is this possible? And so it was what I pieced together in my mind as what I was going to do next as the out to sustain myself financially after leaving porn. And so as soon as I quit shooting porn, I remember just asking all of my friends every single day, hey, can you go here with me and take a picture for my Instagram? And it was just something that I woke up every single day and worked towards. My account grew um, rather quickly. Now I think I have like, what, like 16 million followers, Mm. maybe more. I don't even count anymore. Um, So all of that worked out. I think you know, think change can be scary, but usually the world or whoever your higher power is will show you the next door to open when it's the right time and you're ready to switch and move on to the next phase in your life. That's what I believe at least. Yeah. And so I took that chance. I worked really hard every single day to get myself out of the situation that I was in. 
And luckily it has worked out. Was it hard to get out of the industry though? Or was it quite an easy thing of like, this is, you know, I'm done. I don't want to do it anymore and just walk out. Well, it was a lot of people. So because I was so in demand, a lot of people would offer me more money. Like, Hey, can you just come shoot one more scene? Can you just do this? Can you just do that? Or try to tell you like, you can't cancel all this. You have five months of scenes lined up. Everyone's going to hate you if you quit. But at the time, it just it did not matter to me anymore. I was on the edge and I I was just going to be dead if I had to keep doing it. Well, I'm very proud of you for making that switch in your life and that you were able to recognize that when one door closes, two doors open and you went onto a different path and look at to where you are today. Yeah. I want to talk about sort of the healing work that you've done from that, because I can only imagine, you know, leaving that being so stern, not having, you know, the voice to say no for so long. And then all of a sudden saying, no, no more, I'm done. There has to be some sort of trauma that might have been relived within your body. And I'm curious to know if you've done the healing work to sort of identify the triggers that come along with it. Um, You know, I haven't, I have not met with a therapist about any of this or done any sort of therapy work. I do remember, I actually did try to meet with a therapist one time after all of this and talk about one of the experiences that was especially troubling for me. And they didn't know what to say to me. And Mm -hmm. so I have not gone back to a therapist since then because I remember telling them about an experience and it was just so, I guess, not normal that they did not even know what to tell me. They just kind of stared blankly at me, which maybe it just wasn't the right um, fit. Yeah. But it's, it's been time and also just building myself up through new positive experiences, I guess, is what's healed some of the trauma. Well, I think that what I'm, you know, it seems like you're very connected to who you are right now and that you're probably a lot more self-aware of those periods of your life and how they've inflicted into who Lana is today. So let's talk about this for a second. So leaving sort of the sex industry, I want to talk about the wonderful work you do now to protect sex workers in the industry, to help them find their voices and protect themselves before entering. What would be one of your biggest advices to anyone looking to get into the adult film industry today? I mean, I would, if I could make a choice for them, I would say just don't do it. Mm. But I guess there are some, the whole reason why I tell my experience and my story, it's not to be, oh, poor Lana, feel bad for me. I went through this. It's really just to help other people who, one, are going through the same experience that I went through, yeah. that they're not alone. Two, they can make it through it. And three, if it's something that you're considering doing, these are the negative sides to it. And sure, there might be some girls who don't feel the same way as I feel about my experience, and that's completely fine. I know girls who shop porn who have a completely different experience than me, where they seem to be happy with their choices. Yeah. And that's fine. This is my experience. That's their experience. We all can live with having different different experiences from doing the same thing. But I share mine just to help people who are who would have the same experience as myself to make the choice that I didn't make. And I would tell them, like, just don't do it. Perhaps some things to consider are what we talked about, where when I got into it, I was only with one partner. I was very sexually inexperienced. Perhaps if gangbangs and all these crazy sex things are what you like Mm. to do in your personal life, then maybe it's something that's more fitting for you to do. But for me, it just wasn't the case. So I think, you know, really figuring out who you are and really, but honestly, the, the biggest thing for me is just age as well. I think that they should raise the age to shoot porn to 21. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, what what I do want to say is you obviously found this beautiful power and will inside you to leave. Mm. Where did that come from? If somebody is in the same situation or similar to what you are in, you know, and they're trying to find that power to leave, what would you say? Where did that, where did that fire come from? Well, I wish I would have found it sooner. 
I think when you don't now, I'm like the first person to say no. If I don't want to do something, I'm not doing it. I won't do any type of work that makes me unhappy, whether it's a brand deal or I just won't anymore. Um, so I mean it's it's hard when you're in that situation and you're not someone who feels comfortable saying no or you don't have the self-esteem to say no and you don't believe that you deserve to have control of your body or your life but you really just you have to do it you have to be your own biggest advocate you have to stand up for yourself and you have to do what's right for you i don't care if it makes a hundred other people lose their jobs because you don't want to do something with your body that is your choice and not theirs. It doesn't matter what happens to them. You need to do what's best for you. It is your body. It is your choice. And I am so proud of you. I hope you know that. I am so, so proud of you. And I know that a lot of people listening are as well. You know, on the show, we talk a lot about body image and our relationship with our body image. And so I was just curious to kind of tap into this place you know, what it was your relationship with your body image versus the relationship with your body image now with this newfound motherhood that you're in? Yeah. Um, okay. So body image was something that I talked about a lot on my last podcast that I was doing that I don't do anymore. And I never understood comments from the girls because at the time I would say, you know, I used to have really low self-esteem and I did a lot of things to change my body. Then I realized that I didn't need them and sort mm-hmm. of reverse them. And just, I would tell girls, you know, you don't need plastic surgery. You don't need to do all that. You need to focus on what is inside because that's really what, what helped me so much to feel better. I didn't need to look the best anymore. I had a lot more self-esteem coming from, started reading a lot of books. I started working on my vocabulary. I started working on my education and doing things that built me up as a person from the inside. And that personally gave me the most confidence, more than going and getting a boob job, dyeing my hair or doing all those physical things. But then I would get these comments when I would say stuff like that. Like, oh, it's easy for you to say because, you know, you're skinny, you're pretty, you're perfect. And I just didn't really understand. So I was like, no, anybody can do these things. You know, they can read a book, they can become better in a, a huge myriad of different ways. But now being pregnant and having all these body changes that I have no control over, you know, I mm-hmm. could eat an egg and watermelon and a salad, super healthy. And I'm still going to get bigger. I'm still going to gain weight. My wrists and ankles are still going to get swollen. So I have no control over what's happening with my body. And now I think back to these comments and I'm like, you know, maybe I did think that it was so easy to feel better about yourself through these things because I didn't really, you know, have anything going on with my body at the time, you know, I wasn't overweight. I didn't have any issues with my physical appearance. And so I have noticed that it is a lot harder to feel good, whether, you know, you're intelligent or you have great conversation when you don't feel good about yourself on the outside. So I guess the advice that I could give on that is just, I mean, it's something that I'm just working on every day now with with the rest of these girls who have um, these bad thoughts about their body image. Um, And we all have them. We all have them. You know, we have good days and we have bad days and that's okay to have bad days. I would say you got to have your bad days to get to your good ones. But for you, you're going through a whole new experience. You know, your body is an evolution right now. It's just going and it's going to wave and it's going to grow. And you're going to have to be able to live in a state of full acceptance of knowing that it's there to be able to make life, you know, and that's the beauty of what you're going through. But it's a wonderful thing, I think, for you to start to look back and say, you know what, we all have a right to be able to speak about our lived experiences through our relationship with our body. It doesn't mean that one size should be favored over the next because that should be the preferable way of saying that because they're that specific size, they're okay or they don't have the right to feel a specific way. We all have a right to feel the specific way and we all have a different definition of what makes us feel good. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, I just, you know, I, I don't really have any great advice on how to feel good because we're all going to think the things that we feel about our body. And I think it varies every single day. And it's just, 
for some people, it's a constant battle. I know for me right now it is. It's something that I really struggle with, with my pregnancy. Um, just, I guess, knowing that you're not alone. And I see girls online who are super beautiful and they're crying because they don't think that they're as pretty as the next girl with all these filters on TikTok that you can't even mm-hmm. tell that they have a filter on and all this Photoshop it's, it's a really, really tough world that we live in when it comes to body image because of social media. And I don't, you know, I'm sorry to say, but I don't have any great advice for girls because it's still something that I'm trying to figure out right now as well. I think that's the great advice though, is just to say that, you know, I'm still in the same place of figuring it out myself, but that I'm at least dedicating my, I'm dedicating to myself that it becomes a part of my daily practice, that it's not yeah. something that I'm putting to the side. It is something that I am addressing and, and wanting to find what works for me on those challenging moments. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you've done so much, right? You've, you've obviously gone to social media stardom, like you talked about, you went over, you did some clothing lines, you've made a podcast. You're now going into doing the empowered podcast. You know, one of the things that has really touched me off of the work that you're doing today, not only with just becoming a mother and that beautiful new journey for yourself, but is that you were putting your positivity and purpose back to what you experienced. So as a fellow Playboy sister, you have created a t-shirt with Playboy in which the proceeds give back to pregnant women in prison. Can you speak to us a little bit more about that? Yeah. So when I was incarcerated as a juvenile, I met a few girls who were pregnant in prison and now going through the experience myself, it's like, even in the luxury of my own home with all the nice things that I have and being able to eat what I want, it's still very, very difficult. And so I think about going back to living in prison and their experience being uncomfortable, not getting the nutrition that they needed. A lot of people don't know this, but in prison, I worked in dietary and the food that you're eating is it all starts out as powder. So it's all carbs. You're not really getting any nutritional value. It's all just powder. And then you mix it into potatoes or you mix it into pasta. Like where's the nutritional value in that? And as many people know, nutrition is very important for pregnant women. So where are they getting it from? I don't think that they're provided the nutrition that they need. Also, the facilities are filthy. I was being rained on in my cell. There were bugs all over the place. So besides those issues, women are also only allowed usually 24 hours with their baby after it's born. Mm-hmm. And there are organizations that that help you know set up programs for moms to be able to see their babies more often when they're incarcerated or programs to help them um, through motherhood when they're released, as well as providing prenatal vitamins and um, all of those things that they need. So me and Playboy are collaborating together to create a pregnancy-themed Lana t-shirt where we will be donating the proceeds to one of those charities that helps pregnant women in prison. Because I just I just can't even imagine, you know, I complain all day long about my pregnancy. Can you imagine? Yeah. Well, I think it's amazing what you're doing. It's it's so beautiful to see that you've put your pain to purpose. You're finding ways to not only in your own personal journey with motherhood, be able to give back to what you see needs to be able to be changed. Another great thing I did want to touch on, because I know that it's been something that's been circulating around you kind of right now, is the horrific sort of idea that people aren't giving you the privacy that you deserve during your motherhood. And I want to applaud you, by the way, for not letting people know who the father is and allowing yourself to keep that dear to your heart. Mm -hmm. Because I think that that is a beautiful thing and that you have every right to keep whatever you want private in your life. How has this sort of been like for you kind of going into this newfound journey and doing it with such a big following? Yeah. So it was, the reaction was a lot different than I expected. I knew that there was a stigma behind sex work, but I didn't realize that it still was so prominent. And I remember being really excited to share with my followers that I was having a baby and I was pregnant. And I was so excited to tell them I thought they were going to be happy for me too. And so I put that news out there right away and I got tons of backlash right off the bat, which was not the 
the reaction that I was expecting. And it was kind of upsetting at first. Yeah. Uh, something that I thought that, well, I was really excited about and I wanted to share with people because I thought that it was a great thing. And then the next thing I knew, there were all these memes and jokes being told because I used to be a sex worker, which, which was kind of crazy. And at first I was, you know, I was kind of like trying to fight it. And then I was like, you know what, it's fine for my own mental health. I'm going to step back. I'm going to be more reserved with what I share because this is a really delicate time and I need to focus on myself. I'm so proud of you for doing that. I'm so, so, so proud of you for doing that. You know, we're going to leave this here by just saying, what is the next step for Lana? You know, where is her journey going to go to being more connected to oneself and sharing that with all the goodness you're putting out in the world? Pregnancy has, even though it's been rough, which I think is part of this, it's given me more empathy. It has made me a better person all around. And I want to go more into, you know, helping. It was something that I was sort of already doing, but I want to do even more. Helping yeah. people with my experiences, me and my manager, we're starting the Lana Rhodes Foundation, mm. which is going to support women who are homeless, um, sex workers, women in prison, sort of unrepresented women in various ways. So we're working on um, starting that foundation now. And it's, it, it's just, you know, it's my passion, I guess, to give back to women who have some of the same experiences that I have had who need that extra help because it would have been nice for me to have it. And pregnancy has pushed me even more down that path. I don't know what it is, but something about becoming a mom and pregnancy just makes you a, a better person who cares more about others. What is the one thing that you want to leave this with when it comes to your purpose and maybe one of the biggest misconceptions that you want people to know about who Lana is today. I, I think that there are a lot of misconceptions around sex workers in general. Um, a lot of people think that I am one way when I'm actually the complete opposite. Like a lot of people have no idea that I was only with one person before I did porn or that I've only yeah. had one or two partners in the last four to five years. And so, you know, people are telling these jokes like, oh, the baby's going to come out so fast or, you know, your kid's mom's such a whore. I'm like, I am one of the most reserved people that mm. I know. And so there are so many misconceptions about just sex workers in general, or a lot of stereotypes that people give women, not just sex workers. Um, so it's it's not something that's exclusive to me. I think it's something that all women deal with. Like, for example, if you wear an outfit that's revealing, oh, you must be a slut or a whore for wearing that, mm -hmm. or you must sleep with a bunch of people. I think just people should work on diminishing those stereotypes in general in regards to women, because so many women are treated unfairly and have presumptions about them that are just completely untrue. And it would be really helpful, I think, to women in general if it wasn't that way. Well, thank you. You know, thank you for just being a true example on how you can always have the power to redefine yourself and that our journey to find oneself is actually ever evolving and that you have the power over who you are, no matter if you're in the public eye or not. You know what I mean? You know who you are. And yeah. you're a wonderful, wonderful woman who is trying to put her pain to purpose in all the right areas. So as we leave every episode, we like to ask you a couple questions that tap into what make you you. Um, we speak so often about building your personalized toolbox to lend to your emotional journey. So what served you the last time you had a flare up or a challenging moment? This is something that I found recently that I think is really helpful. So with pregnancy, your emotions can be really up and down. And I've noticed myself getting in depressive um, thoughts and, um, you know, moods more often mm -hmm. than I did before. I'm like, well, this really isn't good. And so I'll take the time when that happens to uh, write down why I figure out the reasons why I'm feeling this way. I write them mm -hmm. down and then I come up with a few solutions for each one. And then I work on those and it's really helpful when you're feeling down about things to know that there's a solution and like something that you can work towards to get yourself out of it. And so for me, that's, what's been really, 
really helpful. And whether it's three times a week or it's every day, I will do it. And it, I don't know what I would do if I didn't have that coping skill right now. I love that. And then lastly, what are the three biggest lessons you've learned in your life? These can be moments, feelings, saying stories, whatever authentically comes to your mind. I would say one, figuring out what's really important to you. I think with the internet and social media, we get so caught up in what we think other people should think that we should be like or things that we should have. And or material items. And I think at some point you realize that those things really aren't important and that we're chasing after things that don't necessarily give us the happiness that we thought that they would. So I think really just looking within and finding out what's important to you, not what's important to other people or what's going to make you look a certain way to your peers or online. Yeah. I guess the second one would be just be the most empathetic and compassionate person that you can be in all situations. It will, I think it'll keep you out of a lot of trouble in life if you're always thinking about how your actions affect other people or what you can do to help other people. I think it will just help you live a better life overall. Thank you, Lana. No, thanks for, for having everything. Me. I love the concept no, of you. your show. It's great. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for your vulnerability, your insights. You know, we look forward to and hope continuing this conversation with you again, Lana. But if anyone would like to connect with Lana, she can be reached on Instagram and Twitter at Lana Rhodes and Facebook X Lana Rhodes. And if you're looking to continue the conversation around living an unapologetically authentic lifestyle, then this podcast is just for you. Our goal is to build a community in which you feel empowered to celebrate you by hearing inspiring stories of ownership to self, to always remember to lead with the three M's. That's mindfulness, movement, and mental engagement. You've got this, and we're here to support you along the way. Be sure to subscribe and download so you don't miss an episode. It's okay to not be okay in your journey to become grounded in the power of you. Now, some of the topics we discussed today may have been triggering. So if you're in need to speak to a crisis counselor, please text home to 741-741 or head over to projecthealthyminds.com slash guide to find mental health resources based on how you're feeling or what you're going through. This has been a Stage 29 podcast production. The podcast is executive produced by Haley Hasselhoff, Patty Chiano, Laferne Cusack, and Stephanie Kaysen. Our audio editors are Jackson Ruff and Jonathan Dematty. Callie Kelts is the social media producer. And a special thanks to the rest of our podcast crew, Rwani Horenige, William Cusack, Lisa Clark, Katie Brown, and Morgan Kaler. This podcast has been produced by Stage 29 Productions for entertainment purposes only. The contents of this podcast does not constitute medical or professional advice, do not reflect the opinions of this company, any of its parent companies, affiliates, subsidiaries, promotional sponsors, or advertising agencies. The views expressed by the host and the guests are their own, and their appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them or an entity they represent. For more information, please go to stage29.tv.